So this morning, we're going to pick up where I left off. We've been in the book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We had a couple of uh, stops along the way, and I want to kind of pick up where we left off in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, Paul is writing this uh, church in Thessalonica. It is a very uh, young church, right? If you haven't been able to trek with us the whole the whole period, or maybe you forgot some, I just want to give a little bit of a context, because kind of, it really kind of helps us to grasp what Paul is saying, right? So we have Thessalonica is this very young church. It was started by the Apostle Paul. And this church had embraced Christ and they're making an incredible impact in a very sinful community in the city of Thessalonica. So much so that, that the, the, the leadership of the, of the day chases the Apostle Paul out of Thessalonica, hoping to stop the move of God, thinking perhaps it was a move of Paul, but it wasn't, right? It was a move of God. So they chase Paul out, but the church continues to flourish. And so what they start to do is they begin to circulate a forged letter. A letter with the hopes that we could, they could discourage the church. And, and what they did is they, they had this forged letter seeming to come from the Apostle Paul. Because here's the deal. The church was, they were in the midst of a very sinful culture. And they were very involved in it before they came to Christ, right? So now they're going against the flow. And as they're going against the flow of the culture, the church is experiencing varying degrees of hostility and, and um. Uh, trials and tribulation from the community that they once walked with. And so this forged letter that appeared to be coming from Paul said to the church, listen, the reason you're going through this is because you're in the midst of the tribulation. You've missed, you've missed the rapture and God's wrath is being poured out on you and that's why you're dealing with such hostility. And so Paul writes this letter, this uh, first letter and second letter, second letter written about six months uh, after the first. And, and his goal was twofold. It was, it was to put their mind at ease that they were not in the midst of the great tribulation, right? That they were not walking in the, the dreaded day of the Lord. We spent a lot of time talking about what that was and why they didn't want to be a part of that. But it was also an appeal to them that while they were going through difficult times, while they were experiencing varying degrees of tribulation, the appeal from the Apostle Paul is to stand firm in the midst of it, right? To not lose hope, to hold on to Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. And so we're going to take a look this morning and, and pick up in this series that we're, we're calling Hope and Holiness in a Hostile World. And so what I just laid out for you took about six months over the last couple of weeks. I did that in three minutes. And so um, I'd encourage you to jump on. You can jump on our website or our app. You can um, uh, listen to um, more detail of what I just laid out for you. But for today, we're going to jump into second chapter of Second Thessalonians with the, the goal of addressing some, some, some really hard things that Paul will write about and, and, and where it apply, appears, where it places itself on God's timeline of eschatology, right? The study of, of end times. Where do these events uh, take place? Because that was the issue. The issue was they thought, or they were being lied to, that they were living in the tribulation. And Paul kind of lays out some um, reasons as to why they were not living in or during the Great Tribulation. So um, let's take a look at our text, 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read uh, the first 12 verses just to give us an idea where we're going, and then we'll circle back and unpack that. 
Verse one of chapter two, Paul says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. I mean, that's exactly what they were doing, right? I and mean, they, they were concerned. That's why this second letter followed so quickly after the first one that you'd not be um, uh, uh, shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter, like I was just referring to, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, that you are in the midst of the day of the Lord. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object or worship so that he may take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He says, do you not remember that when I was with you, when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. Very interesting, he, he kind of, this is not new information that's being laid out to the church. He's letting him know, listen, remember we talked about this, right? We covered this. Even in Paul's short time there, which probably was only about three to five months in Thessalonica, he used that time to let them know the events of, of, of the end that were coming. And he says, and you know what is restraining him, the Antichrist, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they have refused to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What a packed passage of scripture, something that we probably could spend uh, the next year and a half on. We're going to do it in like 35 minutes. Um, I'm hoping to whet your appetite enough so that you can dig into the word of God yourself. A lot of this Paul addresses also in the first uh, epistle of Thessalonians, and so we did go into some more detail there. Um, but I want to begin to, to look at some of the things that Paul will bring up to show them that they're not in the midst of the tribulation. Because that's, again, that's the primary goal of writing this letter. They're freaking out. They're thinking they're in the middle of it. And Paul's like, no, let me let you know why you can rest and be comforted by the fact that you are not in the midst of the tribulation. Now, it's important to note that even though they weren't in the tribulation, they were experiencing times of tribulation, which is why they were concerned. Again, they were going against the flow of the culture, and as a result of that, the hostility of the world around them is coming upon them. As I mentioned earlier, the, 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 um, um, the, the, the finances of Thessalonica was directly connected to a lot of the pagan worship and idolatry of the day, and the church was making such impact that it was literally hitting them right in the wallet. And so they started turning on the church and they started experiencing all kinds of hostility. That's why they started to think, well, maybe 
maybe if this is coming from Paul, maybe we are in the day of the Lord. And so it's important to note here that while they were going through forms of tribulation, they were not going through the tribulation. The scripture makes a distinction between times of tribulation and the great tribulation. For instance, when you think of men like Job, who, who we read his account and we, we recognize that Job experienced a season of, of intense tribulation and he was proven faithful. We think of the Israelites in Egypt, right, being under the, the harsh slavery of, of the Egyptians while they were enslaved. They were, they were treated harshly and under such a hard uh, environment of labor and oppression and persecution. We look at even the Apostle Paul himself, and, and we read in, in, in Paul's epistle in, in, in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he starts to talk about the seasons of persecution and tribulation that he was having to experience. We don't have to go that far back when we consider some of the tribulation that our brothers and sisters to this very day are experiencing all around the globe. While many of us would be facing a lot of inconveniences for our faith today, nothing is like what many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing. Persecution and, and torture and, and martyrdom has not, has not dissipated, it has not disappeared from the face of the earth. There are many who are experiencing seasons of, of tribulation. They all experience tribulation, but that's different than the tribulation that Jesus spoke about at the Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew chapter 24. And as Mark, as, as Mark recorded Jesus' words in his gospel about the great tribulation. It's very different than what John wrote about in the Revelation. And when you look at chapter six to 19, and he lays out that whole season of, of, of tribulation that God would unleash upon the earth. It's very different. It's an, an, actual, it's an actual event. And so the church in Thessalonica, while, while perhaps experiencing tribulation, was not in the great tribulation that they feared they were in. And so in our text today, Paul makes it very clear that some things need to happen before and at the time that tribulation comes. And he's, he's laying that before them. So today isn't really about whether you're post-trib, pre-trib, or mid-trib, right? We kind of covered that in, in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul talked more about the rapture. In the second book of Thessalonians, he talks about the second coming, right? So this isn't so much about pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib. It's kind of more about the, the trib, right? About the tribulation itself, right? And so one thing that every pre-trib, post-trib, and mid-trib person believes is that the church in Thessalonica was not going through the midst, going through the great tribulation at that time. And so in our text today, what Paul does is he, he gives them reasons on how they can know for sure that they were not in the midst of the great tribulation. Well, we look at that and go, well, of course. Well, we weren't living at that time, right? And so he, lets out, he lays out for them how they could know that they were not in the midst of the great tribulation. The first one is he makes reference of the apostasy, the, the great falling away or the, the great rebellion that he makes reference to in verse three. He says, let no one deceive you in any way for that day, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Prior to the rise of the man of lawlessness, there will be a whole scale rebellion or departure from the faith. Now it's my opinion 
that the thing that's going to expedite the great falling away will be the removal of the church. There will be absolute hatred and and disdain, not just for, for Christians, but for any truth that points to a God that we need to subject ourselves to, that would call us to repent. It's not just a lack of embracing Christianity that happens under the apostasy, but it's a complete intolerance of anything that is Christian. Now that doesn't take much of an imagination to consider how can the world ever get there? Because we live in a day today where you look and see what is, how, how God's unchanging word deals with a lot of the things that are embraced and celebrated in our culture. And the church is the one that are holding up and saying, no, no, that's sin. That, that, that God does not change. The church is becoming the enemy of a progressive culture that is moving away from God. And so this idea of thinking, how in the world is everybody going to hate the church? We're on our way, folks. I believe we are beginning to see the beginnings of the apostasy. Now, hey, we might be here for another 150 years. Oh, well, I won't be, but... Um, <laughs> right? Christ, Christ might delay for another 150 years. But it just seems like things are moving very quickly. I, I look at what, what Paul writes to Timothy in Timothy's second epistle, chapter 3. He says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come difficult times. For people will be lovers of self. Right? What, what a selfie culture we live in. Right? Everybody's snapping pictures of them. Lovers of self. It's all about themselves. Right? Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Did you hear about that girl who was suing their parents because she, she said, I didn't want to be born. I mean, this is real stuff that's actually happening today, right? Disobedient to parents, ungrateful. Take them right back out of the world, right? I brought you in, I'll take you right back out. (laughs) Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. Oh boy, do we live in an unappeasable culture today. Nothing, why? Because lust is never satisfied. This unappeasable culture, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Look at this, having the appearance of godliness. What is that? The, 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 The appearance of morality defined by our culture. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Paul says to Timothy, you steer clear, you stay away from that. Avoid such people. I mean, this, this just looks like a, a, an average day in our culture today. So many events, so many faces, so many experiences come to mind as you consider some of the characteristics. We live in a day where all logic and science and common sense are thrown out the window and sacrificed on the altar of self-worship self-importance. We are seeing mass departure from the faith because we are seeing a mass departure from God's word as the authoritative truth that does not change. That is what we are experiencing now in a microcosm of what we will be experienced during the time of the Great Tribulation. It will be massive, it will be global, it will be worldwide. 
The other thing that Paul will point to them about, he, he highlights again, he highlights the apostasy. He highlights, secondly, the man of lawlessness, he says, will be revealed. Here's how you know, church in Thessalonica, that you are not in the midst of the great tribulation. The man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. Who is this man of lawlessness? Also interpreted as the man of sin or the antichrist, the son of destruction. Look at verse three of chapter two. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. These will happen right at the time of tribulation. Revelation describes the man of sin as a, a powerful and deceptive figure who opposes God and exalts himself as God. Doesn't that sound familiar? When you, re when you read about Isaiah's depiction in, in chapter 13, in Isaiah, of Satan being kicked out of, of heaven. At one point, Satan, Lucifer, was, was an archangel who led worship before the throne until pride was found in his heart. And he said, I will ascend to the Most High. I will be like the Most High God. And God kicks him out of heaven. Well, this, this, this being, this character that is going to rise up has that same drive, fueled by Satan, wanting to be worshipped like God. He's also referred to as the Antichrist or the beast. We see the Antichrist rising out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13, having 10 horns and seven heads with blasphemous names on them. He receives his power and his authority from, from the dragon, Satan, and he's worshiped by many people on the earth. And he will be able to perform great signs and wonders and deceive people with his lies. The man of sin in Revelation is portrayed as a, a charismatic and deceptive leader who gains immense power, who deceives people with miracles, that demands worship of himself and promotes a system of worldly corruption and idolatry. This is the, the man that will rise during the Great Tribulation. Now, while there have been many leaders in history that have embodied many of these same characteristics and attributes regionally, the man of lawlessness will be accepted and worshiped globally. A one world system, a one world leader. And Paul's letting them know, letting them know that he had not arrived yet. Interestingly, there will be a group of people one day that is reading this text in some period of time determined by God that they will be, that this will be referring to that person. But Paul is letting them know he has not yet arrived. He has not come to the surface yet. That's not to suggest that there isn't an antichrist spirit already in the world today. We clearly see the spirit of antichrist in the world. John writes about that in his first epistle in chapter 2. He says, children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And so John is saying, listen, you know there's one coming, but listen, there's a whole bunch that have already come. Anyone who's against Christ, against truth, is an Antichrist. This Antichrist spirit is clearly in the world today. He goes on again in, in, in uh, chapter 4 of that first epistle in John. It says, In every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming 
and now is in the world, the world, John says, already. And so we're seeing the coming, of, we know there's a coming of an antichrist, but the spirit of antichrist is already in the world today. Everything that opposes God and opposes truth. It's very interesting as you look at many of the characteristics that will be on display during the great tribulation, we see shadows of them, precursors if you will, long before that great event. So while there are many antichrists in the world already today, the character that is referred to in the great tribulation hasn't surfaced yet. And he's encouraging them. Hey, listen, here's how you know you're not in the midst of the great tribulation. He hasn't surfaced yet. He hasn't surfaced because, because something is restraining him from surfacing. Something is keeping him from rising up and declaring himself as God. And Paul makes reference to this in verses 6. We talk about the restraining power of key, what, what is it that what is the restraining power that keeps the Antichrist from revealing himself? We see in verse six, and you know, and, and again, I, I like I like the way he, he, Paul verbalizes. We get a little bit of insight into what the church knows at this point. Again, he says, and you know what is restraining him. In other words, you know how do you know? Because we talked about this. Right, we, he mentioned it earlier in our earlier text. He said, we, we, these are the things that we discussed. He says, you know what is restraining him, the Antichrist, now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then, when he is out of the way, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Notice what Paul says here. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We already see the effects of Satan in the earth today. And as much as he would love to present himself and declare himself as God today, something is restraining him from doing that. That's what Paul says. Only he who now restrains him to, from doing so is doing that until he is out of the way. So who's in the way? The church is in the way. The bride of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, this presence of the Holy Spirit in the church is the only thing keeping hell from unleashing itself on the earth. And once the church is removed from the earth by way of the rapture, all hell will break loose on the earth. It's the spirit of God within the church that is keeping the restraint in place. Don't underestimate the power and the influence and the significance of the church of Jesus Christ. The spirit of God, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Paul's encouragement to them is that the very fact that they, the church, is still present proves that they are not in the tribulation. And when the church is removed from the earth, the deception of the man of lawlessness is going to increase all the more because truth being communicated from God's people by the Holy Spirit that is within the church will be removed. And we see the deception of the man of lawlessness in verse nine. Look. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. We see the, the activity of Satan is on display because it's consistent with the character of Satan. And it's all on display through this lawless one. Note that he will come with lies. He will come with wicked deceptions. And he will come with false signs and wonders. As I said before, much of what we see laying out for us in the Great Tribulation, we see precursors of that right now even before the, tri the, 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 the Great Tribulation. Don't think for one minute that every reported miracle is from God. What is a miracle? A miracle is anything that takes place that is above natural law. Anything that can not be produced within natural law is considered supernatural. It is therefore a miracle. And I wanna encourage you, be careful what you participate in. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you, you engage in. It grieves me to see so many people casually participating in things like astrology, things like psychics, mediums, yoga, and things like that. These are all things that are connected to demonic activity that the child of God ought to have nothing to do with. And you open that door, you open that door to all kinds of deception. You think, well, yoga, yoga is just exercise. Yoga, you need to do some study on what yoga is. The whole, the, whole, the whole, the word yoga means yoked. You're yoked with something. I always find it interesting when people fight so hard against why Christians can't do yoga. I said, well, why don't you just do exercise? Well, that's not the same thing, exactly. If you're not experiencing something then, then, you know, that's natural, then you're experiencing something supernatural and you need to wonder why that is. What are you yoking yourself with, folks? You see, we're gonna see this, this is gonna be taken you know, global during this great tribulation, but you know what? We're seeing it manifest right before our very eyes. And I dare say the church is, in, is buying into it hook, line, and sinker. We gotta be careful. Why? Because we don't know the word. We're being moved by, by signs and wonders and, and charismatic speakers and big crowds. and big, we, gotta, we gotta stand on God's word. It does not change. You say, but yeah, yeah but it's real. I mean, I went to someone and they, they connected me with my grandmother from the past and they told me things that nobody but her would know. You either connected with a really good phony or you've connected so, with somebody who's in connection with a demonic spirit, a lying spirit, a familiar spirit that can pull from the past and speak those lies. We gotta be really careful, folks. Don't get surprised and, and, and impressed by supernatural activity. All supernatural activity is either from Satan or it's from God. There is no neutral. If it doesn't point a person to saving faith in Jesus Christ alone, then it's not from God, and the scripture calls you to steer clear from it. Listen to what Jesus says. I mean, it's the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is laying out all of the details of what it means to be a disciple. And then we get to chapter seven, and listen to what he says here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. Not only are they doing, casting out demons and doing signs and wonders, but they're doing it in the name of Jesus. And notice what Jesus says here. I never knew you. Not like I knew you once and then forgot about you because you flipped away. No, no, no. I never knew you. You were never a part of me. Be really careful. Can I just throw this out there too? You need to stay away from these deliverance ministries. They claim to be casting demons out of Christians. It's untrue, it's unbiblical, it's unholy, and it's influenced by charlatans at best and demons at worst. Listen, every bit of supernatural activity you need is found in the person of Jesus Christ, and it'll be confirmed in God's word. Right? I'm not afraid of feeling things. I'm not, afraid of, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of supernatural activity. I'm not afraid of experience. But I want to make sure that my experiences are pointing me to the God of the scriptures, that are pointing me to, to the Jesus of the Bible to make sure that I'm not being deceived by some seducing spirit. The deception we're seeing in our day on a limited scale will be experienced widespread throughout the tribulation. And Paul is saying to them, we're just not there yet. We're just not there yet. That's how you know you're not in the midst of the great tribulation. It's interesting, this, last, this other point that Paul makes here, that he, he makes reference to this strong delusion that God will send. Look at verse nine, get a little context here. Verse nine, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and, fa- and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. For who? For those who are perishing. Because they, those who are perishing, refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, listen, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they, those who are perishing, so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Such hard words. Paul points to the judgment that will come upon those who have rejected the truth. Those who have refused God's gift of salvation in Christ. There will be a point where they will be unable to change their minds. Why? because God will send a strong delusion causing them to believe that which is false. This is for that person who says, well, you know what, hey, I don't know if this stuff is true. Hey, if the rapture ever happens, well then, then I'll believe. No, you won't. Because God's gonna send a strong delusion that you'll believe that which is false. Now that's tough for us to wrap our arms around, but listen, this is not inconsistent with what God has done in the past. You know, we read, when we read in the Exodus, you know that no less than 10 times do we read that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not allow the children of Israel to go and worship. No less than 10 times. God hardened his heart. We see in Romans 1 that, that man suppresses the truth to embrace a lie 
And we see that God gives them over, turns them over to the lust of their flesh. They are then consumed by their, by their lusts. They are driven by the lust. They are completely unsatisfied for every, by anything. We see in Romans 11 that God blinded the eyes of the Jews for, reject, for rejecting Christ. He said, I'll give them eyes, but they will not see. I'll give them ears that they cannot hear, and I'll send a stupor upon them so they cannot believe. But they will believe through the tribulation. God's going to open their eyes during the tribulation, and they're going to they're going to recognize that this one that they, re- they rejected is their Messiah. You're going to see 144,000 Jews come to Christ during the tribulation, and they're going to preach the gospel. You're going to see a whole bunch of people come to Christ. So we've seen snapshots of this over the course of time. You say, well, I don't know if I like that. It doesn't matter if you like that. That's what the scripture says. <laughs> this doesn't feel right. It doesn't sound nice. Take it up with God. I don't know. I, I'm sure Pharaoh didn't think it was nice. To, like, sometimes we need to stop filtering God's word through how we think God should do what God does. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are transcendent over my thoughts. I wrestle with some of this stuff too, but you know what? He's God. I'm not. He's the creator. I'm the creation. I just kind of go by what it says. Paul is using this, those points to show them in Thessalonica, that they are not in the midst of the great tribulation. And while they were, they were, while they weren't in the tribulation period, they were experiencing tribulation, though. They were experiencing hostility, just like all the saints before them, just like all the saints after them, just like you and me today just like our brothers and sisters around the world. See, well, so, so basically, Pastor, you're saying this has nothing to do with us? No, we, we go through seasons of tribulation. And the reality of it is, Jesus said in John, John chapter 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But Jesus said, take heart, I've overcome the world. Here's an interesting thought. There's a very real possibility that someday, somewhere, someone will be listening to this very message and they will be in the midst of the great tribulation. Paul has the same instruction for them as he has for you and I and for the church in Thessalonica that were going through seasons of tribulation and that instruction was this, number six, to stand firm and hold to the truth. Stand firm and hold to the truth. Look at verse 13. But we ought to always give thanks to, you for, to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And he's basically highlighting our letter, not the forged letter. Paul's instruction to stand firm and hold to the, to, the, to the tradition that he taught are the equivalent of God's word to us. What was a letter to the church in Thessalonica is the word of God to us. 
And the instruct to them is the same instruction to us. It's to stand firm in God's word. We live in a day, and it's going to get worse, where if, we, if we're not, if you're not in the word, if you don't know the truth, you're not going to be able to spot a counterfeit. We need to be able to know God's truth for ourselves, not what the pastor, re, not, not regurgitating what the pastor preached on a Sunday or the, light, the latest blog or post. We need to dig into God's word for ourselves and allow the Spirit of God to teach us because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He guides us into all truth. The Word of God is what guards our hearts and minds from error and points us to our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who at the end of the tribulation will return with his church and set up his kingdom for a thousand years during the millennium period. Paul writes this in verse 16, wrapping up these thoughts. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace may comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I love that. Paul highlights two kinds of comfort here. Immediate comfort as they're in the journey. But then he also talks about this eternal comfort. This eternal comfort that only God can give. This eternal comfort that's directly connected to Christ's work applied in our lives that make us born again. Having repented from our sins and turning to the Savior, we have this eternal comfort. I love what Paul says. He, he says, our Father who loved us, he gave us eternal comfort. He gave us a, a good hope. How many know we have a good hope? Aren't you thankful that it doesn't end right here? I was just saying that to somebody the other day. I'm like, it'd be so depressing to think this was it. Like, I'm banking on the fact that a lot of things I'm missing out on, just like in, in you know, relationally or whatever, like, you know, like, I'm, I'm looking forward to the fact I'm gonna be able to catch up with people for eternity. You know, I'm thanking God that, that with all the stuff that's going on, I'm not losing hope. Because there's gonna be a day I step out of time and I'm into eternity and I'm gonna stand before the presence of the Lord not because I went to some church, not because I, I, I hung around with the right people, because I embraced the Son as the only means of my salvation. And Paul's encouraging them and letting them know, listen, whether, you, whether you're going through it in, in, in a, during a season or whether the church at some point or people at some point are going through the tribulation, we have this comfort of knowing this, this blessed assurance that's what it is. This eternal comfort is blessed assurance. And we've been saved by his blood, made new, reconciled back to God. And there's coming a day where we're going to see him. And all of the distractions all of the trials and the tribulations, all of the tears and fears and worries are going to fall. And we're going to be in the presence of him, living as we were intended to before the fall. That's the blessed assurance that we have. Amen. Praise God for that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we have 
in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. I pray, Father, for those who find themselves in a season of trial and tribulation right now. Lord, may this word of encouragement and instruct to stand firm. Lord, may it find its place in each person's heart today, knowing that the God who loves us is going to carry us through. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we have in Jesus. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation. I've been purchased by God. I've been born of spirit and washed by his blood. God, thank you. That's my story. That is my song. Maybe you're here this morning. That's not your story. That's not your song. I encourage you to look to Jesus today. Turn from your sins and put your, your trust in Christ and Christ alone. Today is the day of salvation. Christ came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. As we enter into a time of, of worship this morning, I would encourage you, let's, let's just respond to, with, with gratitude and love and adoration to our great God for the blessed assurance that we have in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's stand together.